On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers beyond academia. Each episode will interview a person who's put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities scholars to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. I'm Michael Andreth, and today we are once again in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media to speak with Rhode Island Council for the Humanities fellow Jenea Kizzy. She has a BA in History and Creative Writing from Bard College and a Master's in Library and Information Studies from the University of Rhode Island. Thank you for speaking with us today, Jenea. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. So your undergraduate degrees from Bard College were in Creative Writing and History, and you have the Master's in Library and Information Studies from the University of Rhode Island. Where do these different disciplines intersect for you? What role did your education play in leading you to the unusual but fascinating career you have had in the public humanities? I, I think the disciplines are all connected, really. It's, it, it was a natural progression for me. When I started at Bard, I wanted to write the next great American novel, as, as many of us straight out of high school with stars in our eyes do. Yes. And at Bard... There, there can sometimes be a wait for when you get into a creative writing workshop. They, they try to give that to the, the sophomores and the upperclassmen. So my first semester, I actually spent not in any creative writing classes, but sort of trying to fulfill the various other requirements that BART has as like a liberal arts education foundation. And the classes that I gravitated to were all history courses. And from these, these first history courses, Women in Antiquity and Stalin's Russia, which were amazing, I managed to, I, of course, got so much inspiration creatively from my, from my writing. It was all about sort of history informing my artistic practice and not simply in the, in the subject matter, but also in just sort of the, the ways that people interact with each other, the ways the classes were structured. That, that all fed into my writing later on. And so while, while many Bard students who do creative writing will double major in English, I wound up double majoring in history. And then while I was majoring in history and creative writing, I gained or I, I guess I discovered this very voracious cr- curiosity about, about everything and found myself in the Bard Library all the time. And then eventually the Bard Library wasn't enough, so I was in the Vassar Library all the time. And then that wasn't enough, so then I was at the New York Public Library all the time. And then that that turned into this massive love of libraries, not just the information that they contain, but the the sacredness of the environment, the the work one can get done while one is in a library. And and so once I graduated and had my 
amazing retail crisis <laughs> of, of working in retail, I, I realized that libraries were where I wanted to go, and I got my uh, first library job at Princeton's Mud Manuscript Library. And, and from there, it went straight into archives, and it was really this wonderful synthesis of everything that I had looked at. Well, and uh, among the many positions that you filled in the public communities, one of the most prominent that emerges when I have did the research for this interview was your role as an archivist, right? So what do you think is the value of curated archives to the public humanities in general? And more specifically, I might like you to talk about the AS220 archives that you curated for the Providence Public Library. But if you start just thinking about the role of archivists in general and, and then maybe talk about that project a little bit. I love archives. That's where one of the places where my, my heart really is. What I find so interesting about it is that it's uh, it's a presentation of history. Archives are, are never neutral, but they are meant to be open and accessible. They're meant to present history rather than interpreting history. And there's, there's really something service-oriented about that that's always appealed to me. And I think from a public humanities perspective, archives are are the raw materials. They're also they also again to go back to this idea of the sacred. They also have this this sort of tangible fetishistic magic to them. They give everybody a connection with history that is very very visceral and very very deep and almost biological. And and that makes it a really interesting way to to communicate history, the story of people connecting with other people, different people's stories. For the AS220 collection, I well, love... Maybe we should say just to, very quickly, yes, just in case people don't know, what what yes. is AS220? <laughs> say a little bit about that. Oh, man. That. To encapsulate that in a sentence, wow. <laughs> AS220 is an arts collective in Providence, Rhode Island, started in 1985, that provides performance space, studio space, workspace, maker space, and living space for for artists in Rhode Island and uh, internationally. And they are internationally credited with being part of this placemaking movement that has artists creating and working with their their cities their spaces to to improve them to make them places that are for the people who live in them and my work with the ASU 20 collection started with a project archivist position at Providence Public Library and i had the wonderful task goal of bringing in the collection so literally bringing the boxes from ASU 20 down the street to Providence Public Library and these many like burritos, we called them, of posters. <laughs> and then also processing the collection, which is the, the actual intellectual work of saying, this is how this amazing group of artists organize these records. How do I present that in a way that where the organization and intellectual conception of their, their history and their work is maintained and can still be observed by the the outside observer, uh, the historian, the the person who's just going back to look at the poster they made in 1985. I, I love all the stuff in the collection, and it has a lot of value just in that, that sort of vi- visceral way that I was talking about. I love the, the video of 
people slapping each other with raw liver and I and I love <laughs> and I love like the the doodles and I love even the like meticulous meeting minutes like it's it's all there and it's all really amazing to see the story unfold but what I love most about it and the value I think it has to to everybody and and from a public humanities perspective is the the way that we approached the processing of the collection. And this this really is to the credit of the Providence Public Library Special Collections and Rhode Island Collection Departments and Kate Wells, the Rhode Island Collection Curator in particular. We wanted this collection to be a a living archive. There's a there's a real tendency in archives to think of archives as the thing that we take from the dead person and then we sort of interpret. This was we we talked to the stewards of the history and we said we think it was organized this way and for, to this purpose. Is that right? And they corrected us, which was very humbling from an archives perspective, but like so important. And then the library is still doing work and still thinking about ways to let this be the story of every single person who was a part of AS220. There's some really exciting digital initiatives that they that they want to get going to get people interacting with the collection in a way that makes history active and gives a voice to so many different stories that this collection touches upon. Which goes back to that sort of visceral, mm-hmm. almost biological yeah. connection that, that people can have to uh, the kind of archives that, that you work with. Interesting to me when I was reading about your work with the AS220 collections, the kind of things that I have never thought of that like you were speaking about, not just the decisions of how to organize the material, but but things like Remembering to like move, remove staples and and paper oh, no. clips that I just don't associate with with archive work until I actually hear somebody saying, but that's part of maintaining it, right? That's like the longest, biggest part of archives <laughs> work. <laughs> um, yes, there's there's the intellectual work, and then there's the the very much physical preservation of of the materials and conservation of the materials, which is a lot of labor, a lot of tiny pinpricks. And <laughs> and and a lot of dealing with with rusty materials, but it's all it 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 also gives you a very again visceral connection with with the materials to to do the things that they need to survive and and be useful to people in the future. Well, you spoke about some dig- some ongoing digital initiatives at mm-hmm. Providence Public Library, and when you were selected as the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities Fellow earlier this year. One of the factors that was named in favor of your selection was your knowledge in the area of digital humanities. It is perhaps fair to say that the digital humanities is still an emerging field and one that has generated both excitement but a certain level of debate among traditional humanists. How do you define the digital humanities and how do you see it contributing to the overall project of the humanities? Thinking about humanities, if if the humanities are the question, the big question of what are we doing, you know, the the question I ask when I'm in traffic, what are we doing? Like, why are <laughs> why are we doing this? If the humanities are what are we doing, then the digital humanities are are the question, what are we doing with this technology? What are we doing with these these developments? It's and it's twofold. It's not just what are we doing with technology, but also 
how are we doing it? It, it, answers, it answers the question in its own work. It observes how people interact in a, in a digital medium and it interacts with people. It interprets that through the digital medium. I would also say that I feel like the digital humanities are, are not really new. I was thinking about the Middletown studies earlier today and, and about how they talked a lot about how the car was this new technology that was affecting the way that people communicated, mostly the way teenagers communicated, <laughs> but like <laughs> with each other alone. But the, but the idea was, <laughs> but the idea was that like new technology always has an effect on, on the the question of of what we are and what are we doing and how do we do it it simplifies things it complicates things and digital humanities looks at that and and can really do some some amazing things both in in changing the direction of how we work with new technologies and also how we how we think of our ourselves with this technology because so often the tendency is to just, when you have something and, and tech, the digital technology, it seems so ubiquitous that it's, it's been around forever, but actually it is still, in, in, you know, in a cosmic time yes. frame, it's still, <laughs> it's still really new. And so our tendency can be to just rush ahead with these things without pausing to think about, well, how should these things emerge in, in a way that uh, makes them work for us instead of the other way around, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so maybe that's one of the sort of important things about the digital humanities. Do you think that's fair to say, or am I coming up short there. <laughs> I no, I, I agree. And not not just should, but what is what is working now that it's been around for a while. I just attended a and by just I mean a few months ago, a digital sustainability workshop uh, funded by the NEH. And at that workshop they, they talked about this this very simple concept of digital obsolescence, of the idea that you don't have to keep the Yahoo site <laughs> forever like you you literally don't or you the wix site or whatever it is for your for your digital project you can just say we're going to keep it for 2 years and and let it go and and that's a thing that that in in the digital world we kind of think oh it's forever which is hilarious especially from an archivist point of view but there's there are, there are thoughts like that. Nobody was really thinking of it this way but it's really important that we we have this consideration of obsolescence, for example. Well, speaking of the digital humanities, your project as Rich Fellow is to research, write, and connect Wikipedia profiles of key artists, writers, performers, and cultural leaders with associations to Rhode Island. For many years, Wikipedia was derided as an illegitimate source of information by so-called serious researchers. But that perception seems to have changed over the past several years. Why do you think this perception has changed, and what do you see as the value of an archive like Wikipedia for the public humanities? So reading about the history of Wikipedia and how it was started, I think part of the reason why it was derided was because it was always, as it was built, was always a sort of debate slash intersection of two different groups of people, academics and hackers. And, <laughs> and they're, they're different, but they're the same. If you look at the homogeneity of um, Wikipedia writers today, you might not know the difference. The thought that I've had is, in this conflict between academics and hackers, there, there really is this sort of 
decision that that academics and business people had to make, which was we're entering the, the digital age, we're entering the information era. How do we move at that speed and still be intellectuals? How do we move at this this speed and still have our, our scholarliness? And and to do that, they had to let go of some of the gatekeeping that is that is so valued in in the scholarly academic world. And that's good in a way, but it also it also caused this need for sort of mourning and bemoaning what would have been lost, which was now everybody's involved. <laughs> oh no. And what does that mean? And so there there was this idea that everybody's involved and that that means that it means nothing. And there's there's sort of two parts to that. First and I, I read a book called The Wikipedia Revolution, which was written by a Wikipedian that mentioned the the fact that this isn't new, this this sort of ebbing of intellectual gatekeeping for speed. The Oxford English Dictionary did basically the same thing hmm. yeah. to, to be created. And and so yeah, it's it's not new. And I, I would argue that a lot of the the gatekeeping that scholars were bemoaning is still existent in Wikipedia. But also to talk about the the value for public humanities, it does mean that that more voices can, with the right tools, be a part of the the larger discourse about things. And there's there's the other side of Wikipedia that's I think really valuable for public humanities. Not not just the articles in Wikipedia, but also the documentation that's implicit in it. And this is a thing that that you that can and has been lost in, in sort of other compendiums of information. The conversations that are going on in the background are all available and archived on the backside of Wikipedia. I mean, and by backside, I mean the talk tab. And then the the histories, the the ways that people think of the information over time that are, that is in the articles is also in the, the history. And that's all archi- archived into, you know, again, as an archivist, I laugh, but perpetually, you know, archived. And I think those those two places tell really interesting stories uh, about the ways we think about things that are, and this is a Wikipedia term, quote unquote, notable in the world. And I I think that's a really interesting source to that that hasn't quite been mined, but can be mined. Um, and I hope people will. Can you say a little more about what the Wikipedia project is and your overall goals for the project? Uh, so concretely, the, the Wikipedia project has three very specific quantitative goals, which are 250 new articles about Rhode Island arts and culture in Wikipedia, 100 edits to existing articles about Rhode Island arts and culture, and 400 connections between those new and old articles and and other articles within Wikipedia. And the the purpose of this is to present the the story of Rhode Island arts and culture to the the world to the larger public, but also very specifically to to grant funders, to tourists, to people who are interested in investing in Rhode Island arts and culture, but they they need a leg to stand on. They need to to see at a you know at a very broad level what we are and what we're about, our our personality. And then in addition to that, 
There, there are other goals related to starting to look at the modern story of Rhode Island arts and culture in in a comprehensive way. We we talk about the the AS220s, the other arts movements and artists, the Viola Davises, but we we don't talk about how Viola Davis started acting because an actor, well, the director from Trinity Rep came to her school at Central Falls and as part of a larger program to get children in high schools into theater. And the reason that that happened was because Trinity Rep was started by local community members who just wanted good theater in Providence. Like, it's just, it's this wonderful sort of soup of a story and and starting to show those those connections in this already great garden of connections serves everyone not not just us getting to know ourselves but the people who want to get to know us and the people who don't care about us but you know we'll we'll see that we are connected to some of their very favorite things and then in addition to that the project also as as we were framing it in the very beginning we want it to not simply be about the 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 gold star stuff that we've we've all heard about but also about the the untold underrepresented and oppressed and hidden voices in Rhode Island specifically talking about women people of color people from all marginalized groups Wikipedia editors right now are somewhere between 3 and 8% female, for example. And there are no statistics on race, but I imagine they're sure. <laughs> um, not great. Just just given the, the origins of, of Wikipedia, again, in those sort of hackerly and academic worlds, you get one kind of person. So there's... From, from a larger standpoint, I think making making this medium represent Rhode Island in in a more fair and and truly realistic way, like the, the way that we actually look, as opposed to the way we look on Wikipedia now is very important and and has very much shaped the way that I am choosing articles to write. Many of your projects, such as the AS220 archive, documenting Providence's rise as a viable city for artistic communities, or the Wikipedia project, chronicling Rhode Island's roots as a creative place, both of these and and some of your other projects have a regional flavor about them. How do you think regional projects like these contribute to the public humanities more broadly? Well, there's the immediate concrete ways that they that they apply, which is that many organizations in Rhode Island and Providence specifically have been subjects of national studies and subjects of national awards. They're, they are being used nationally and internationally as, as frameworks for other communities that may have their own sort of regional flavors. And then in addition to that, I would say that regional is sort of the and I was trying to stay away from the Jurassic Park metaphors here, but it's it's that chaos theory part of of life. It's that it's that idea that regional is a collection of particular circumstances and variables. Everything from a recession in the seventies and the weather and the inability to knock down buildings, creating a, a community of artists. It to you know the 
the actual things, the the economy and the and the colleges and things like that. They all are particular variables that other people might want to reproduce. They they have value because they inform what what happened that was successful. Well, maybe it comes back to that idea that if if the humanities are about what are we doing, yeah. right, then that <laughs> that is always going to be intimately connected to place. Right? It, it, what we are doing it just can't be separated from where we are, and and so maybe there's some value in that and and where we are is in Rhode Island and, and in Providence, right? Or in the surrounding area anyway. And so um, is that is that where you see what you're getting at in terms of like the larger value of, of regional to the public humanities in general? Yes. Well, yes. I, I absolutely agree that it is that that all that all communities and all um, humanities work has has this regional element to it this this cultural element that is about the gathering of people in a certain place and that place can also be virtual of course yeah. and I think too the the value of that regional part doesn't have to be the the replication but can simply be the the understanding and and enjoyment of what is created out of a certain place. It's part of the, it's one of the pieces of the puzzle that, that Rhode Island is like Rhode Island and here are the things that come out of Rhode Island and you know, Maine is like Maine and here are the things that come out of Maine. It's, it, it all tells a story and the stories blend together in really interesting ways, especially the, the ways that people move in and out of regions and the way that different regions affect different places. I would say, you know, footnote, I'm I'm not the only Bardian, for example, that you've that you've talked to on on this show. And I'm not the only Bardian I know in, in Providence, for example. There there are sort of regional movements that gravitate toward other regions and and things that talk to each other in, in that way as well. And it's and it's really a pleasure to see the the way that they connect, particularly in the in the AS220 collection, seeing people move from the sort of down city AS220 movement, sort of graduate from AS220 and and move into like Olneyville and 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 other different places, Colorado, for example, and of course Portland, um, <laughs> where where like it's 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 an incubator too and. In that way, the regional becomes national and international. In addition to your many work experiences, you are also a writer and an artist. You are the co-director of Frequency Writers from 2016 to 2017, and you performed with Tinder Table and also had work appear at the Providence Fringe Fest and Creature Conserve's Urban Wildlife Exhibit. How does this intersect with your work in archives and public humanities? And is all of your work from storytelling to curating, aiming towards one larger goal, or do you like having different parts of your life in different projects? Well, I, I think it's all storytelling, and I think that's what, uh, what appeals to me most. As, as somebody who wanted to write the great American novel, I, um, in this work, in my archives work, in my creative work, I'm, I'm telling a lot of different stories in a lot of different ways, and that really appeals to me. I also think that when one is telling a story or when one is telling stories, different media and different methods 
are more appropriate to the story one is trying to tell. For example, my creature conserve work was getting at the the choking of Manhattan fish by red tide and looking at red tide now as a result of climate change and looking at red tide in 18 in the 1890s as a result of industrial dumping which again is you know we're sort of right back at climate change um, yeah. and and I can say that sentence, which is, you know, we all sort of intellectually, like our, our brains do it. But the, the work that I did was was literally sort of the the words and the images of Manhattan fish being choked throughout the the book in, in a very physical, messy, dirty way, which which was a little hard on the gallery, by the way. But I think but I think tells tells the story in a different way, in a in a visual way, rather than me citing specifically this report on red tide in the 1890s, and then making a footnote to say, here's what's happening currently. There there is a separation between my my archives work, my history work, and my creative work that I that I do enjoy, but they but the it's it's very much like different parts of a band rather than, you know, the thing I put away this hat and then I put on this hat. It's they're they're all going at once in my head. And and I think the the larger end is really the 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 synthesis of all of those things. Well, thinking about your multifaceted career, right? Your your versatility that you're talking about, it has allowed you to fill many different roles. I wonder if you could say just a little about that overall career arc, uh, both in terms of what you have achieved already and uh, if you have any thoughts on where you see it heading. Well, I was I was just thinking about how being an archivist and studying the records of organizations very much informed my ability to think about records and organization and leadership when I was co-director of Frequency. Weird, weird things like that where... Places that I've gone in in my career, and and the things one does repeatedly, like reading meeting minutes, can really inform how I decide to do my own work. So it's 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 almost nonlinear. It's <laughs> it's it's you know the 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 processes are talking to the 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 places that I choose to go but also the places that I choose to go are the things that I'm really fascinated in, uh, fascinated by and and find myself drawn toward. And I think looking at the future, looking at um, where I want my career to go, again, I, I really feel that that synthesis is is where I'm where I'm headed. Organizations like Dirt Palace and the Afrofuturist Affair slash Black Quantum, Futurism really appeal to me because it's not simply it's it's not the hats it's not it's not this thing this thing and this thing and then I go home and I eat Doritos it's I live what I what I'm learning I live what I'm fascinated in you know I go home and I'm talking with artists and and reading these things and then I and then as I'm working that informs those things not simply a cycle but but all of the things working together toward an end and and that really brings me back to my my love of service of public service of working with the public and allowing 
allowing it to be a conversation with the public. The, all, of, all of these strands involve a public-facing part, and I, I would really love for, it, for my, my future, the future of my career, to have its heart in service and then to really touch upon all of, all of those other things, art and history and information management and understanding and curiosity to be all together. I think that's an important aspect of what we think about uh, in terms when we when we say the public humanities, it's different than other kinds of careers in that it is lived, right? It's it's a lived experience. It's not something that ends at the end of the day when we punch out and go home and continues. And there's a, probably a very real sense too, in which even people who are not quote unquote involved in the public humanities are in fact very much. Uh, living the public humanities just by in terms of their involvement in the world. Right? It's, it's not the kind of thing that you can divorce yourself from by just saying, I'm not a part of the public humanities. With that in mind, what do you think of the term public humanities? Do you find it a useful term? I, I find it reactive just in, in the way that it's, in the way that it's phrased. It it says that we are public because clearly somebody said that we weren't. But I, I think it could also be useful. I, I, really, I really like the idea of sort of tweaking it, A, toward, toward that, that service orientation that I, that I personally lo- love so much. And I also like the idea of, of a flip side of public humanities like what are what are private humanities <laughs> like what are what are does is is that like the the internal stuff is that the stuff where you you re, you go into the library for 7 years and you come out with something completely bananas and and like i i love that concept like i love the idea of of somebody just sort of disappearing from the public eye and then making something and then and then coming out with it and it really changing everything. I think it could really I think that there's some real potential for for play with the that idea. And also I think that the the concept of public humanities is is deeply noble of of that sort of phrasing of of what we do. It says that, you know, we're we're reaching out and then I'll say on the flip side of that, that that there is also that danger of of saying public, meaning we're reaching out because or we're reaching down, you know, because you're you're over there and we're over here. And and to go back to my my kooky, crazy private humanities idea, I think that it is really important in the public humanities not to underestimate the public and the intellectual capability of the public. I, I think that the, the highfalutinness that we're trying to distance ourselves from with that term might actually appeal to many members of the public. <laughs> keeping, keeping the journals cloistered, keeping them behind pay, paywalls and, and in, in certain communities a doesn't make any sense and is starting to not literally just physically not work for anybody anymore. And also, I think it's really exciting that when those sort of private humanities things start to open up, people who are not part of the community because of the name, because of their availability, because of the the money they have, 
will be involved, will be, will find it appealing, will will bring new thoughts and ideas to it. And and that's that's all humanities. That's not just, you know, the public right. part. Finally, what advice would you give to our listeners who might be considering a career in the public humanities? If you're thinking about it, you should probably do it. We we need everybody. If you are if you're not sure that you can't find the the part of the humanities or the job in the humanities that is absolutely right for you, that's good. That means that you will be the kind of person who who does the searching and the asking and the changing of of the way that we do things to make it more more inclusive and more exciting. Don't be afraid to do that work. Don't be afraid to go in and explore. You're already an explorer. You already love the humanities. Hop on in. And and the more curious and earnest you are, the more you'll see those those walls and hills and towers sort of fall away and, and open up. There's there's something really amazing about this field and and the way that we all understand and want to aid each other when we have genuine questions and and heartfelt feelings about the connections between us. Tania Kizzy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. I, I had a great time. You've been listening to the Careers in the Public Humanities. We'll be back in fall 2020 with our next season, and we hope you'll join us. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or wherever you find your podcasts. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek, and this episode has been produced by Michael Landreth and Catherine Winters in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Catherine Winters is our editor, and Mark Setta is our sound designer. 